Chapter Ten of Starman's Quest. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Starman's Quest by Robert Silverberg. Chapter Ten. Alan woke early the next morning, but it was Rat, not Hawks, who pulled him out of sleep. The little extraterrestrial was nibbling on his ear. Bleary-eyed, Alan sat up and blinked. "Oh, it's you. I thought you were on a silent strike." There wasn't anything I wanted to say, so I kept quiet. But I want to say some things now, before your friend wakes up. The bellatrician had been silent all the past evening, tagging along behind Alan and Hawks like a faithful pet, but keeping his mouth closed. Go ahead and say them then, Alan said. I don't like this fellow Hawks. I think you're in for trouble if you stick with him. He's going to take me to Atlas to get Steve. You can get to Atlas yourself. He's given you all the help you'll need. Alan shook his head. I'm no baby. I can take care of myself without your help. The little alien creature shrugged. Suit yourself. But I'll tell you one thing, Alan. I'm going back to the Valhalla whether you are or not. I don't like Earth or Hawks either. Remember that. Who said I was staying here? Didn't you hear me bet Max that I'd go back? I heard you. I say you're going to lose that bet. I say this Hawks is going to fast talk you into staying here, and if I had any need for money, I'd put down a side bet on Hawks' side. Alan laughed. You think you know me better than I know myself? I never for a minute thought of jumping ship. Has my advice ever steered you wrong? I'm older than you are, Alan. I'm ten or twenty times smarter. I can see where you're heading, and Alan grew suddenly angry. Nag, nag, nag! You're worse than an old woman. Why don't you keep quiet the way you did last night and leave me alone? I know what I'm doing, and when I want your advice, I'll ask for it. Have it your way, Rat said. His tone was mildly reproachful. Alan felt abashed at having scolded the little alien that way, but he did not know how to make proper amends. Besides, he was annoyed at Rat's preachiness. He and Rat had been together too long. The bellatrician probably thought he was still only ten years old and in need of constant advice. He rolled over and went back to sleep. About an hour later, he was awakened again, this time by Hawks. He dressed and they ate. Good real food, no synthetics served by Hawks Auto Chef, and then set out for the Atlas Games Parlor, 68th Avenue and 423rd Street, in Upper York City. The time was 13:27 when they emerged on the street. Hawks assured him that Steve would already be at work. Most unsuccessful gamblers started making the rounds of the parlors in early afternoon. They took the under tube back to the heart of the city and kept going into the suburb of Upper York. Getting out at the 423rd Street terminal, they walked briskly through the narrow, crowded streets toward 68th Avenue. When they were a block away, Alan spotted the sign blinking on and off in watery red letters: "Atlas Games Parlor." A smaller sign proclaimed the parlor's status. Class C, which allowed any mediocre player to make use of its facility. As they drew near, Alan felt a tingle of excitement. 
This was what he had come to the Earther city for in the first place, to find Steve. For weeks he had been picturing the circumstances of this meeting. Now it was about to take place. The Atlas was similar to the other games parlor, where Alan had had the set to with the robo-huckster. It was dark-windowed, and a shining blue robot stood outside, urging passerby to step inside and try their luck. Alan moistened his dry lips. He felt cold and numb inside. He won't be there, he thought. He won't be there. Hawks took a wad of bills from his wallet. Here's two hundred credits for you to use, at the tables while you're looking around. I'll have to wait outside. There'd be a royal uproar if a Class A man ever set foot inside a place like the Atlas. Alan smiled nervously. He was pleased that Hawks was unable to come with him. He wanted to handle the problem by himself for a change. And he was not anxious for the gambler to witness the scene between him and Steve. If Steve were inside, that is. He nodded tightly and walked toward the door. The robo-huckster outside chattered at him. Come right on in, sir. Step inside. Five credits can get you a hundred here. Right this way. I'm going, Alan said. He passed through the photobeam and into the games parlor. Another robot came sliding up to him and scanned his features. This is a Class C establishment, sir. If your card is any higher than a Class C, you cannot compete here. Would you mind showing me your card, sir? I don't have any. I'm an unrated beginner. That was what Hawks had told him to say. I'd like a single table, please. He was shown to a table to the left of the croupier's booth. The Atlas was a good bit dingier than the Class A parlor he had been in the night before. Its electroluminescent light panels fizzed and sputtered, casting uncertain shadows here and there. A round was in progress. Figures were bent busily over their boards, altering their computations and changing their light patterns. Alan slid a five-credit piece into the slot, while waiting for the round to finish and the next to begin, looked around at his fellow patrons. In the semi-dark that prevailed, it was difficult to make out faces. He would have trouble recognizing Steve. A musky odor hung low over the hall, sweet, pungent, yet somehow unpleasant. He realized he had experienced that odor before, and tried to remember. Yes. Last night in the other games parlor, he had smelled a wisp of the fragrance, and Hawks had told him it was a narcotic cigarette. It lay heavy in the stale air of the Class C parlor. Patrons stared with fanatic intensity at the racing patterns of light before them. Alan glanced from one to the next. A bald head whose dome glinted bright gold in the dusk nodded his hands together in an anguish of indecision. A slim, dreamy-eyed young man gripped the sides of the table, frenzied as the numbers spiraled upward. A fat woman in her late forties, hopelessly dazed by the intricate game, slumped wearily in her seat. Beyond that he could not see. There were other patrons on the far side of the rostrum. Perhaps Steve was over there but it was forbidden for anyone to wander through the rows of tables searching for a particular player. 
The gong rang, ending the round. Number 322 wins a hundred credits, barked the croupier. The man at table 322 shambled forward for his money. He walked with a twisted shuffle. His body shook palsiedly. Hawkes had warned him of these, too, the dream-dust addicts, who in the late stages of their addiction became hollow shells of men barely able to walk. He took his hundred credits and returned to his table without smiling. Alan shuddered and looked away. Earth was not a pretty world. Life was good if you had the stream running with you, as Hawkes did. But for each successful one like Hawkes, how many fought unsuccessfully against the current and were swept away into dream-dust, or worse? Steve, he looked down the row for Steve. And then the board lit up again, and for the first time he was playing. He set up a tentative pattern. Gold streaks flitted across the board, mingling with red and blue blinkers. Then the first number came. Alan integrated it hastily and realized he had constructed a totally worthless pattern. He wiped the board clean and set up new figures, based on the one number he already had. Already he knew he was hopelessly far behind the others. But he kept with it as the minutes crawled past. Sweat dribbled down his face and neck. He had none of Hawk's easy confidence with the board's controls. This game was hard work for a beginner. Later, perhaps, some of the steps would become automatic. But now... 78 sub-12 over 13, came the droning instructions, and Alan pulled levers and twisted ratchets to keep his pattern true. He saw the attraction the game held for the people of Earth. It required such deep concentration, such careful attention, that one had no time to ponder other problems. It was impossible to think and compete at the same time. The game offered perfect escape from the harsh realities of Earther existence. 612 Sigma 5. Again, Alan recompensated. His nerves tingled. He felt he must be close to victory. All thought of what he had come here for slipped away. Steve was forgotten. Only the flashing board counted. Only the game. Five more numbers went by. Suddenly the gong rang, indicating that someone had achieved a winning pattern, and it was like the fall of a headsman's axe to Alan. He had lost. That was all he could think of. He had lost. The winner was a dreamy-eyed youth at table 166, who accepted his winnings without a word and took his seat. As Alan drew out another five-credit piece for the next round, he realized what he was doing. He was being caught up in the nerve-stretching excitement of the game. He was forgetting Steve, forgetting the waiting hawks outside. He stretched back in his seat and peered as far down the row as he could see. No sign of Steve there. He had to be on the other side of the croupier. Alan decided to do his best to win. That way he could advance to the rostrum and scan the other half of the hall. But the game fled by too quickly. He made a false computation on the eleventh number, and watched in dismay as his pattern drew further and further away from the numbers being called off. 
He drove himself furiously, trying to make amends, but it was impossible. The winner was the man at table 217 on the other side. He was a lantern-jawed giant with a powerful frame of a longshoreman, and he laughed in pleasure as he collected his money. Three more rounds went by. Alan picked up increasing skill at the game, but failed to win. He saw his shortcoming, but he could do nothing to help it. He was unable to extrapolate ahead. Hawks was gifted with the knack of being able to extend probable patterns two or three moves into the future. Alan could only work with the given, and so he never made the swift series of guesses which led to victory. He had spent nearly an hour in the parlor now, fruitlessly. The next round came and went. Table 111 takes us for a 150 credits, came the croupier's cry. Alan relaxed, waiting for the lucky winner to collect and for the next round to begin. The winner reached the centrally located rostrum. Alan looked at him. He was tall, fairly young, in his thirties perhaps, with stooped shoulders and a dull glazedness about his eyes. He looked familiar. Steve. Feeling no excitement now that the quest had reached success, Alan slipped from his seat and made his way around the croupier's rostrum and down the far aisle. Steve had already taken his seat at table 111. Alan came up behind him just as the gong sounded to signal the new round. Steve was hunched over the board, calculating with almost desperate fury. Alan touched his shoulder. Steve? Without looking up, Steve snapped. Get out of here, whoever you are. Can't you see I'm busy? Steve, I... A robot sidled up to Alan and grabbed him firmly by the arm. It is forbidden to disturb the players while they are engaged in a game. We will have to eject you from this parlor. Angrily, Alan broke loose from the robot's grasp and leaned over Steve. He shook him by the shoulder roughly, trying to shake loose his mind from the flickering games board. Steve, look up. It's me, Alan, your brother. Steve slapped at Alan's hand as he would at a fly. Alan saw other robots converging on him from various points in the room. In a minute, they'd hurl him out into the street. Recklessly, he grabbed Steve by the shoulders and spun him around in his seat. A curse tumbled from Steve's lips, then fell strangely silent. You remember me, Steve? Your brother Alan? Your twin brother once? Steve had changed, certainly. His hair was no longer thick and curly. It seemed to have straightened out and darkened a little. Wrinkles seamed his forehead. His eyes were deep-set and surrounded by lines. He was slightly overweight, and it showed. He looked terribly tired. Looking at him was like looking at a comic mirror that distorted and altered your features. But there was nothing comic about Steve's appearance. In a hoarse whisper he said, Alan? Yes. Alan felt robot arms grasping him firmly. He struggled to break loose and saw Steve trying to say something. Only no words were coming. Steve was very pale. Let go of him, Steve said finally. He, he wasn't disturbing me. 
He must be ejected. It is the rule. Conflict traced deep lines on Steve's face. All right, then. We'll both leave. The robots released Alan, who rubbed his arms ruefully. Together they walked up the aisle and out into the street. Hawks stood waiting there. I see you've found him. It took long enough. M Max, this is my brother, Stephen Donnell. Alan's voice was shaky with tension. Steve, this is a friend of mine, Max Hawks. You don't need to tell me who he is, Steve said. His voice was deeper and harsher than Alan remembered it. Every gamesman knows Hawks. He's the best there is. In the warm daylight, Steve looked even older than his twenty-six years that was his chronological age. To Alan's eyes, he seemed to be a man who had been kicked around by life, a man who had not yet given up, but who knew he didn't stand much of a chance for the future. And he looked ashamed. The old sparkle was gone from his brother's eyes. Quietly, Steve said, "'Okay, Alan, you tracked me down.' Call me whatever names you want to call me and let me get about my business. I don't do quite as well as your friend Hawks, and I happen to be in need of a lot of cash in a hurry. I didn't come to call you names. Let's go someplace where we can talk, Alan said. There's a lot for us to talk about. End of chapter 10